You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey everybody, this is Scott O'Donohue, one of the pastors of the Village Church that gathers in downtown Hamilton, Ohio. This is part five in uh, a long series on gender and sexuality. We're teaching through a class in the month of May of 2021 called Not Our Own, where we're hoping to cultivate clarity, uh, compassion, and an evangelistic community through conversations around gender and sexuality. So if you've not yet listened to the first four episodes in this series, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, They're kind of building blocks for where we've arrived today, which uh, we're going to start looking at the scriptures uh, that address same-sex sexuality. Uh, That's what we're going to look at, uh, behavior, attraction, those sorts of things as it relates to same-sex sexuality. Um, So we're going to zero in on same-sex sexuality. Uh, First of all, because this is just a large question that we get in general. This is why many of us, maybe you are listening to this series, is to kind of hear what the Bible says about this uh, orientation in particular. Um, And look, we also know that there are other orientations uh, that are recognized today, um, but the the Bible doesn't use our particular spectrum of sexual orientation. Uh, In fact, it doesn't really have a category of orientation at all, and we'll get into that and do some uh, in some later episodes. Um, But the scriptures do talk about same-sex sexual behavior, and later in the New Testament, we'll see same-sex sexual attraction. Um, And so we're going to kind of use same-sex sexuality uh, to represent other non-heterosexual sexualities uh, as we look at the scriptures. Not because they're all the same, uh, not trying to lump them in uh, all together by any stretch of the imagination, um, and not because heterosexuality is in and of itself righteous. Uh, We've talked about this before, that just because something is normal, uh, normative, the most common thing that we see, um, doesn't mean that it's holy. Uh, God's work often is to sanctify what is normal. Um, However, heterosexual relationships are the only archetype that we see presented in pre-fall creation, uh, and sexual behavior, the the becoming one flesh that we see, uh, is only presented in heterosexual monogamous marriage in pre-fall creation. This is what we talked about looking at Genesis 1 and 2. So that's the only thing that we see prescribed before sin. Um, So uh, the thing is, if something apart from a holy heterosexual monogamous marriage um, and the subsequent sexual relations that follow that, if something apart from that is affirmed by the Lord, um, then we should expect for God to make that clear to us in the scriptures, to call it good, to call it blessed, just like he did with, um, even when we look at the New Testament and his loosening of the food laws, um, or when the Gentiles, that the non-Jews were able to come into God's family without being circumcised, without following the law. Um, these changes, these transitions, these loosenings of stuff that we see um, throughout uh, the history of God's people, those things were made clear and explicit. Uh, and so if if this is also something that is loosened or changed over the course of time from Old Testament to New Testament, then we should expect to see that actually be made clear uh, in the scriptures, especially because many of those Gentiles, uh, the, the non-Jews that we talked about, who had never been circumcised, now they didn't follow the food laws, all that stuff, they were exactly the ones coming into the early church with 
different sexual ethics, different customs, different relationships, different norms. Um, and so the, the writers of the New Testament um, would have had to pastor, uh, instruct, counsel those folks through that. And so if different uh, sexualities, uh, behaviors, attractions were approved, were good, uh, were blessed, then, then we ought to find clear positive affirmation and counsel to the early church that same-sex relationships and or uh, sexual behavior are good, right, if there's been a shift there. So um, that's kind of what we're looking for to see evidence of uh, same-sex sexuality being affirmed in the scriptures. So what we're going to do is we're actually just going to start in the Old Testament and we'll move to the New Testament. Uh, In this specific episode, uh, we are going to look at the Old Testament scriptures that that address same-sex sexuality. So we're going to start uh, by looking at the first instance uh, that usually comes up uh, or is mentioned when we talk about this, which is uh, in Genesis 19, 1 through 9, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, And the reality is, uh, even in the class that we taught, uh, we mentioned this passage, but we did not read it um, because honestly, this passage is irrelevant uh, to our conversation today. Um, so if you're not familiar with Genesis 19, 1 through 9, uh, like I said, it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, two visitors, uh, which are actually two angels, they come to visit Lot, uh, a guy who's one of Abraham's relatives in the city of Sodom. And what happens is these two visitors, these angels, uh, as they're entering the city, they capture the, uh, the sexual attention of uh, men of all ages in the city. And so at nighttime, uh, what happens is they come to Lot's door where the angels are staying, uh, and they essentially try to beat down the door uh, to drag out the angels, um, essentially to rape them, uh, to have sex with them without their consent together. So what we see in Genesis 19, 1 through 9 is attempted gang rape. Um, so as its place in this conversation, no one on any side of the spectrum uh, that I've talked to, that you will talk to, um, is going to be okay with attempted gang rape. Um, it, so that makes this particular passage irrelevant. No one's fighting to affirm what happened here or to make legal or lawful or call good what occurred uh, in Genesis 19, 1 through 9. Uh, monogamous same-sex relationships are not in view here. And to be honest, same-sex sexual behavior isn't even called out specifically in any reference to this passage, um, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. In every biblical reference to Sodom, it's about pride, it's about not caring for the poor, lack of hospitality. There is mention of sexual immorality. Um, In Jude 7, there's a, a couple words that Sometimes folks think uh, Jude was referring to uh, same-sex sexual behavior, um, but that's not true. Uh, the, the root words when it's referring to this in Jude 7, um, uh, it's the root word of, of porneo, which is just sexual immorality in general. Certainly could include same-sex sexual behavior, but includes just fornication and sex outside of marriage, all that stuff in general. Um, and then also that, uh, that, that the folks in Sodom, they craved for uh, strange flesh, uh, heterosarchs. Uh, in the Greek, which is actually not the flesh of men, uh, actually humanity in general. It's uh, it's them craving after the flesh, the bodies of angels, um, which is who the visitors were uh, in Sodom that were that were going to visit Lot. So really, in, in no biblical reference, Old Testament, New Testament, does same-sex sexual behavior uh, even come up explicitly uh, in what's being talked about. So for for those reasons. 
Genesis 19, 1 through 9 uh, is actually pretty irrelevant to our conversation about same-sex sexuality. So hopefully that's a little clarifying for you. It might be surprising, um, but that is uh, where we landed on that passage. Uh, now, the only uh, two other places in the Old Testament that we see uh, talk about same-sex sexual behavior is in Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. And I'll read both passages uh, respectively. Uh, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That's Leviticus 18.22. And then this is Leviticus 20.13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. That's Leviticus 20.13. So, uh, before we even jump into talking about these verses in particular, uh, a question that comes up quite frequently is, uh, is really about the law, because this is where we find these passages is, uh, is in a, a section between Leviticus 18, uh, a unit between Leviticus 18 and 21 of, of different laws. Um, and yet we rightly ask, is the law, the Old Testament law, still binding for us today? If we go back to Old Testament law and start picking stuff out of there um, to say, hey, this is wrong today, I thought we were free from the law. I thought Jesus fulfilled the law. I thought that we don't have to worry about that anymore. So aren't we just kind of picking and choosing stuff from the Old Testament to follow? Uh, and so what's true is that the law can't condemn us anymore. All right, uh, that's, that's the freedom of the gospel is that the law cannot condemn us anymore because Jesus has taken on that condemnation for us. Uh, Jesus actually came to not abolish the law, but he, he fulfilled the law for us, right? So the law is good. Um, we sometimes have this feeling that the law is a bad thing. Um, it functions sometimes as like kind of showing us the ways that we fail and don't live up to uh, God's standards or doing right by, by other people or by the Lord. Um, but the law is, is good. It's God showing his people how they ought to live, how they ought to live together in community, uh, in relationship with him. And if we follow the law, man, things would be pretty great. And so uh, what I believe um, is that we should not pick and choose from the Old Testament law. Uh, I'm not somebody who ascribes to the uh, moral law, civil law, ceremonial law, kind of divisions of, of the Old Testament law. Lots of folks like to kind of break up the laws in those categories. Um, and it, it helps us uh, figure out what we should pay more attention to and what we can kind of leave behind um, if you subscribe to that kind of thought. Um, because yeah, we could say that, that Jesus, uh, man, he fulfilled all of the law for us, but there's a, a bit of law that seems to be dealing more with morality. Uh, and that kind of carries through to today. What's right and wrong, uh, what was wrong then is wrong today. What was right then uh, is wrong or is right today as well. So morality, that doesn't change. Uh, that kind of transcends time. But when we look at uh, the civil law, things that might be more um, kind of dealing in-house with uh, Israel's stuff, where Israel was a theocracy and God was king and he ruled over. And so really the government was sort of a, a theocracy uh, in a sense. Oh, those civil laws, they're not really ap applicable to us today because we don't live in a theocracy. Uh, we don't live with God as the head of our government here in the United States. So those laws uh, kind of go away. We don't have to pay attention to them anymore. They're not for us. Uh, ceremonial laws, uh, man, these are things like purity stuff, uh, clean and unclean, those sorts of things. Well, Jesus, uh, he makes us clean, and so therefore we don't have to 
have to really pay attention to those things anymore either. Like I get the thinking behind those things, but the reality is those specific categories, um, while they're helpful to think through and, and discuss and they provide some context maybe for the Old Testament law, um, man, those categories just simply aren't in uh, the Old Testament law. They don't exist. That The law is not structured that way. Those are extra biblical categories that we have placed on the Old Testament to try to make it easier for us to understand. And that's just not something that I'm fully comfortable with uh, ascribing to all the way. So in my opinion, unless the New Testament specifically loosens uh, a particular law, um, then it's still meaningful for us in some way today. Uh, Again, going back to the food laws that we see uh, specifically, explicitly loosened in the New Testament by, uh, by the Lord. The same thing with Gentiles coming into the church without having to follow the law. Um, those are things specifically loosened. Um, but, but man, unless the New Testament makes it actually clear, I'm not comfortable with saying, hey, we don't have to pay attention to that anymore. So we get to ask, what does this law mean? Uh, what did it mean to them back then? And, and is there uh, an undergirding principle? Is there a sense of morality? Uh, what would this have meant to them back then? Uh, and so we can carry that into today. Okay, what does that mean for us today? What kind of a community uh, should that make us into if you were to follow that same line of thought? So um, here are some examples just to maybe give you a flavor of this unit of law that we see in Leviticus 18 through 20, 21. Um, here are some examples of laws that haven't been loosened uh, at all in the New Testament. We see uh, these chapters in Leviticus talk about incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, uh, showing partiality in the legal system, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, um, turning to witches or necromancers for help or for insight, um, and even love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that, that idea actually originates here in this unit of law. Right? And so th- there are a ton of laws uh, here in Leviticus Many of them are repeated or they have a, a common thread that uh, is, uh, is threaded throughout uh, the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Some of them don't repeat, but many of them do. Um, but all of the laws about sex and sexuality, those things are still binding for us today. Uh, they still carry through today. They're not explicitly loosened. Um, many of them are repeated, in fact, and so there's no reason to dismiss them. In fact, uh, to, to not then include... The, the prohibition about same-sex sexual behavior that we do see in Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013, um, that would actually be us being inconsistent. That would be an exception to uh, the rest of the laws that do continue into the New Testament and into today. That, that would be the exception to a, a fair and consistent application um, of this section of, of laws. So that's a, that's a pretty significant thing to be mindful of. Um, another question that we get uh, is is about uh, cult prostitution or uh, about these passages being about something other than just general um, same-sex sexual behavior, uh, something outside of a, a monogamous faithful union between two men or two women. This has to be about something around like cult prostitution where uh, servants and temples, they would offer themselves, their bodies, they would serve their gods in some way by by having sex or engaging in sexual behavior. Um, so is that what's in view here? Well, uh, Hebrew, uh, in Hebrew, there's a word that's uh, translated as connected with cult prostitution. That word is uh, kedeshim, um, and that word is not used 
here in Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Those words are not used here. The very general, basic words for man uh, and male, uh, is and zakar, and also for, uh, for woman or wife, um, isa. Uh, this, these are the words that are used here in Leviticus uh, in these specific verses. So it's speaking to men in general. Um, and, and look, it, it cult prostitution is actually condemned in the Old Testament using the word kadashim in Deuteronomy 23, 17 through 18. Uh, and so if, if the authors, the editors of the Old Testament wanted to have that in view, um, then they, they would have used that word, uh, but instead they they chose the general words for for men, uh, for male, for women or wife here uh, in these verses. Uh, on top of that, there's just no context um, that there's any kind of uh, special circumstance, any kind of coercion, any lack of consent or violence or anything like that happening here in these passages. None of that context is given. Um, and in fact, in uh, our second verse in Leviticus 20. 13, both parties uh, seem to receive the same punishment. Um, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. There's no, there's no accommodation for a victim or a survivor in some way. Um, it, what's in view here is kind of a, a, mutual, um, a, a mutual act. There are consenting adults, equal participants in the behavior. Um, and we do have precedent for accommodation being made for rape or abuse or a lack of consent or coercion. Uh, in Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 29, uh, the, the law runs through a number of circumstances that involve a man and a woman uh, who end up lying together. And uh, it does hit on rape. It does hit on uh, when a man seduces a woman and kind of takes advantage of her in some way. Um, it, it, it accommodates for these different circumstances and uh, the consequences also accommodate for that as well to the point of, man, when a woman is raped in the Old Testament, she's expected to report, she's expected to be believed, and she's not given uh, a punishment for that. Only the man is punished. So what we see uh, in the Old Testament uh, here as it relates to Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, um, man, I think we can come to the verdict that Leviticus is, is prohibiting same-sex sexual behavior, at least between uh, men um, in general, right? It does not call out uh, female-to-female relationships. It's only speaking about men here. But in general, Leviticus is prohibiting same-sex sexual behavior between men. So, Verdicts, uh, yeah, Genesis 19, 1 through 9, not relevant at all to our conversation as it relates to Solomon and Gomorrah. And here in Leviticus, uh, we see it prohibiting same-sex sexual behavior between men. Um, so with that, I'm going to, to leave this episode where we are. Um, next time, we'll come back and we'll start looking at some New Testament passages that also speak about same-sex sexuality. Thanks, guys. See you then.